Sweet baby Jesus. He's been plasticized, frozen in time in major scenes all around the world. And you probably have one. He's stiff as a board, hard, no squirming, no wiggling, no crying, no cooing. Chances are last Christmas you rolled him in some paper, packed him up in a little box and put him in a dark attic or a stuffy closet. No room for squiggling or worm, wiggling, squiggling, squirming, wiggling, worming, whatever you call it. No, move for, no room for uh, moving around in that stuffy closet. You'll, you'll get him out in a few months and he'll still be two days old. An infant, frozen in time, hard as a rock. And there's something else you'll probably unpack. Three statues of three wise men bearing three gifts. You see, the Magi, as wise as they were, did not escape their own plastication. And here's what you'll do next. In a moment of sincere piety, inspired by an unbiblical assumption, you'll place those Magi statues amongst the shepherds, near Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. At the manger scene, the only problem is that the Magi weren't there. The nativity, the coming of the Messiah, was not a still shot. Sweet baby Jesus was squirming and wiggling. He was crying and cooing. It was not a silent night. A barn is not a quiet place. It doesn't smell good either. Neither do shepherds and sheep, for that matter. Peace himself had come to earth, but amidst commotion, in the middle of dirt and dung, with a soundtrack of cow moans and sheep chatter. One day followed another. Baby Jesus was fed and cared for by Mary. Blood pumped through his veins. He sucked in oxygen, and his body traded it out for carbon dioxide, which he blew out of his nostrils. The Gospels tell us he was circumcised according to Jewish custom, and I'm sure that he was neither still nor quiet when that happened. One day followed another. He discovered his hands. He followed colors and movements with his infant eyes. He began to recognize his mother's face. He smiled. He rolled over. He crawled. He giggled when Joseph tickled his tummy. Meanwhile, the Magi, the Magi from the east had seen the same ball of light that the shepherds had seen the night Jesus was born, and the Magi were home at the time, a month's journey at least from Bethlehem. They were not at the stable that night. A friend of mine says that when she sees a manger scene complete with three wise men set up in a church, she has this urge to kidnap the Magi and place them down the hall somewhere. Because they weren't there. They had some traveling to do. And I told you earlier that today's message is not about Christmas per se. The Magi were not really a part of the Christmas story. Today we're going to take this trip with the Magi. Months have passed since the day we celebrated Jesus' birth. Just like months had passed since the day Jesus was born when the Magi showed up. The gifts that we opened have long been opened and all but forgotten. The excitement dwindled a bit with every passing day. If we are honest with ourselves, we would admit that our own once soft hearts 
had begun to plasticize a bit. The Christmas trees were now mulch. The ornaments and stockings were handled with care, and we packed up our nativities and treated the plasticized baby Jesus with an extra special measure of care. But know this, the real baby Jesus was not still. He was alive. He grew. He whose birth was marked by the glow of a special star was the light of the world. The Magi followed that star and found the light. They not only saw Jesus, but they saw Jesus for who he really was. There are three lessons that I would like us to learn from God's work with the Magi this morning. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we should see the world through his eyes. We should worship him above the world. We should live wisely in the world. Worldview, worship, and wisdom. Worldview, worship, and wisdom. This is a true and trustworthy statement. We need this light of the world to melt our hard plastic hearts. It would do us well to live our lives with bended knee. So let's pack up our camels, start walking. Worldview. Who were these magi? We know that they were from the east, probably modern day Turkey. The word for magi is the same word used for magic or magician. In a sense, the magi were sorcerers. But in a sense, they were also scientists. They studied the stars, the night sky. To understand the Magi, we need to know that more than anything, they were searchers of deep things. They were honest enough to ask, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? They looked everywhere for their answers, the natural and the supernatural. We know from Old Testament scriptures that they were even familiar with and studied Jewish prophecies. So much so, they knew the arrival of the king of the Jews would be marked by a great light. They had not edited Yahweh out of their equation. That would be a work for our scientists and our sky watchers. The scene is like something out of a fantasy. There are these wise men who are searching They long to know the meaning of their existence. They turn over every rock. They read every ancient writing. And to their credit, they know the answer to their questions must lie in something outside of themselves. Something bigger. So they go to the sky. They go to the stars. Surely this bejeweled expanse has got to mean something, they say. And in their search for resolution, they're ever looking but never seeing They're ever-reaching but never grasping. Until. Until the one who made the stars and the universe sky in which they are hung sends a special star. This is the same one who sent prophets centuries before. He told them about a coming Messiah and he told them to write stuff down. As a side note, God has revealed himself in the scriptures We would be wise to look for him there rather than wait for him to prove himself through a supernatural display. But the special star. The special star would draw the Magi's attention away from the night sky and lead them to the light of the world. They brought gifts. 
They approach the king of the universe with bended knee. And it is from this angle that everything makes sense. He is creator. It is he who flung the stars. The answers are not in how they were arranged, but in the fact that they were arranged. It was he who was behind it all. Yahweh had shifted their paradigms. God used the stars they once worshipped to lead the Magi to the one who was to be worshipped. Many of our scientists today study creation absent of a creator. They find meaning in chance and happenstance. They claim to understand the universe, but they don't really. We have to attribute all of this to something, and we have three options. Either everything always existed, or it was created by something, or it simply appeared with no cause. You tell me which one of these options requires no faith commitment. All three options require a faith commitment. There's no escape. Every person must exercise faith. Everyone must believe something we cannot see. Now listen closely. In editing Yahweh out of the equation, our scientists have created a false dichotomy between faith and reason. When the truth is, you can't have one without the other. If you're going to even talk about how everything got here, make no mistake, you're talking about things you cannot see with your eyes. To even enter the discussion requires a faith in something you cannot see. So students, especially Scott College students, don't be fooled by this false dichotomy between faith and reason. It's bunk. But know this, a proper worldview has Christ at the center of it all, as the Lord of it all, and the foundation of it all. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we should see the world through his eyes. That is the proper view of reality. Our paradigms shift when we approach him with bended knee. Our worldview changes. The light of the world opens our eyes to see the true state of affairs. And let me say this by way of application. Whether you homeschool your children, send them to private school or send them to public school, Christ is Lord of all. We cannot separate the study of creation from the Creator. All subjects are under His Lordship. Do you remember Moses' words to the Israelites in the desert as they prepared to enter the hostile land of Canaan? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. We are in a hostile land. One of the most enjoyable books I've read over the past couple of years is Notes from the Tilta World by N.D. Wilson. Notes from the Tilta World by N.D. Wilson. Wilson takes a very creative approach to things like the existence of God and man and the problem of pain and a few other things. Wilson calls the God of the Big Bang Theory and evolution the God of boom. 
We live in a day and an age where a lot of people worship the God of boom. But you need to understand something. The Big Bang Theory and evolution, they're nothing more than grand constructs that have the following conclusion. I am accountable to no one. I am accountable to no one. The God of boom is no God at all. The real God is self. Don't be fooled. We live in a land hostile to the idea of a God who is behind it all. But, now hear me, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, teach your children the truth. Show them how to bend their knee by bending yours. Remind them that they are accountable to an infinite and holy God, the one who made the stuff your house is made of, the one who made the dirt and rocks along the trails you walk, the one who hung the heavens. Everything has one Lord. Every field of study has one Lord. And children from kindergarten to college, listen closely. As you study and do your schoolwork, and you feel like it's of the devil, you're actually peering into the mind of God. I know it makes your brain hurt, but that's not the devil's doing. Our God is a big God. There's a lot to learn. Our minds can't fully understand him, so we break it up bit by bit, but it still hurts. It's hard work. But think about this. When you study math, What are you learning about God? He's logical. He's reasonable. He makes sense. Maybe he doesn't always seem to make sense. But two plus two is always four. He has rules and a design for his creation. What about when you study science? God is creative. He's a masterful artist. From the complexity of a tiny cell to the overwhelming expanse of the universe. From the cooing of a baby to the flight of a bird. From the colors of a cloudy sunset to the shapes of mountain peaks and canyons. I could go on and on, but God has an imagination. And a good one at that. When we study history and literature, we find God to be a storyteller and a poet. It's been said that any good story must have redemption at its center. That's because any story worthy of being called good must in some way reflect the grand story of the divine storyteller. And so it is with history. In the fullness of time, the Christ child came. The light of the world, peace on earth, the hope of all the years. He is our redemption, and when we approach him with bended knee, we begin to see the world through his eyes. He is Lord of all. Worship. The Magi were not Jews. King Herod, who was appointed by the Roman government, he was the Jewish king. All the other characters in this account were Jewish. The chief priests, the scribes, and all of Jerusalem. But check this out. The only people in this story interested in finding the Christ child 
so they can worship the king of the universe were the Gentiles, the Magi. The chief priests and the scribes, they knew the prophecies. They knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and surely they saw the great light, but they were uninterested. They didn't go searching like the Magi did. On top of that, all of Jerusalem, it says, was troubled at the news. Why? Why were they troubled at the news of the coming Messiah? Well, they had become content with the status quo. King Herod, as heinous as he was, had provided the Jews with stability and a certain amount of prosperity. The people of Jerusalem didn't want to rock the boat. They were content with their Roman-appointed Edomite king. They didn't want a Messiah. And even worse, when King Herod hears the news of Jesus' birth, he tries to kill Jesus. When that doesn't work, he orders the murder of who knows how many innocent children. How often do we see the great light and act uninterested? Because Jesus is here. The people here are the body of Christ. Be excited. Be humble. Serve each other in humility. The bread and the cup are the body and blood of Christ. How often do we take communion in an uninterested, going through the motions kind of way? The word become flesh can be found in the scriptures. Jesus is in the scriptures. How often do we read a blog, turn on the TV, pick up a phone instead of thumbing through the scriptures? Do not be content with the status quo. The king of the universe loves you. Worship him. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Go to him and bend your knee. It was the Gentiles, the unclean, the aliens, the ones who didn't belong, who came to worship the king. Something new was in the air. This gospel was for Jew and Gentile alike. The dividing wall was beginning to crack. You know, you and me, we're magi. Not because we're so wise, but because we don't belong here. Most of our ancestors were standing in fields, staring at stars, and trying to figure out, why am I here? But somewhere down the line, God intervened. God bent the knees of some of our ancient kin. The blessing of redemption has been passed on to us. Grace has enfolded us into his family. We don't belong here, but because of the blood of Christ, we belong here. The Magi bring gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts fit for a king. When you think about it, in one sense, the Magi are bringing the creator of the universe a mere speck of what is already his. For the Christ child, the value is not in the gifts themselves, but in the allegiance and worship behind the gifts. It's as if the Magi are saying, Christ child, 
Look at what you have created. Gold and frankincense and myrrh, these are but drops in the bucket of all that is yours, but they are indeed yours. You're worthy of it. And we adore you as Lord of all. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we worship. How do we worship? We come with bended knee. We bring what's already his. We place it at his feet. We say, this is nothing compared to all that is yours. But it's yours, and you're worthy of it. Think about it. What do we have that isn't his? Our houses, our money, our talents, our families, our lives. Lay them at his feet with bended knee. They are gifts to be given back to the Lord of all. Show him your allegiance. Give him your worship. There's something else that we can give him. It belongs to him. All of it. Because he paid for it. Worship him with bended knee and lay your sin, your guilt, your shame, your fear and your doubt at his feet. He paid for it all. It's his now. Let go of it. He can handle it. Jesus, all of this is nothing compared to your riches. This pornography, this lust, it's nothing. This bitterness, this unforgiveness, this gossip, this envy and hate, it's nothing. This laziness and apathy, this wasted time, this hurt, the abuse, the ugliness of my soul, this fear and uncertainty, these questions, it's all nothing. Nothing compared to your riches. But it's yours. You paid for it. I receive your free gift of gay grace and Forgiveness, and I vow to live a life of humility, a life of dependence on you, a life of bended knee. He's worthy of our allegiance and worship. Now, think about this. The, for the Magi, the value of their gifts is not found in the monetary benefit to Jesus, but in the monetary cost to them. We can call it sacrifice. These were costly items, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So let me ask you this. What has your faith cost you? What has your faith cost you? Anything? Or perhaps money, time, comfort, fleeting pleasures, some relationships? What is God calling you to sacrifice as an act of worship? And adoration. Is he calling you to sacrifice some time and serve the church in a way you haven't before? Is he calling you to sacrifice some money and give more to missions? Is he calling you to sacrifice some comfort and develop relationships with folks that don't look, act, or think just like you do? Just something to think about. What, what is your faith costing you? One thing's for sure, when we see Jesus for who he really is, we should worship him above all that the world has to offer. We should live a bended knee 
life. Wisdom. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There was no need to be foolish and face certain death. The Magi had been warned in a dream and they made a wise choice. As believers, we have to learn how to bob and weave in a hostile world. When to bob and when to weave requires wisdom. Last Christmas, my boys received a dramatized audio version of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. A while back, I was listening to the horse and his boy during my commute to work. In short, Bree is a talking horse who had been stolen from Narnia as a foal. He's now a stately war horse to a nobleman in the country of Kalorman. Shasta is a poor fisherman's son who grows up abused in Kalorman. The two have been drawn or called, if you will, to Narnia. It's an allegory. Theirs is a spiritual journey, and so is ours. They long for Narnia and begin the escape from Kalorman. But they must first pass through the city of Tashban, a wicked place where evil is good and good is evil. And we, likewise, must pass through this world. We can learn a few things about wisdom from the travels of Bree and Shasta. Before they enter Tashban, Bree agrees to have his tail cut and to walk with the reserved gate so that no one would suspect Shasta of stealing a nobleman's horse. We would be wise to exercise humility as we go through this world. There's no need to die an unnecessary death. There's no need for our witness to die an unnecessary death either. There's a balance between being obnoxiously evangelistic and timidly silent. Let us be bold, but let us be winsome. We are on our way home. Let us live in such a way that others will want to follow. There are times in the story when Bree and Shasta aren't traveling as fast as they should. Aslan, the, the great lion, the Christ figure, gives them some strong encouragement by way of claws and teeth and roars. There are times in this life when we need to push harder. God calls us to seemingly impossible challenges sometimes. Whether in work or marriage or church, school, evangelism. He may be calling you to exert just a little more energy. To push a little harder. I don't know if he is. And if he is, I don't know what your push harder situation may be. But know this, Aslan is always there. Giving you the strength and the encouragement you need. There are times in the story where Bree and Shasta simply need to rest. It usually comes after a long hard push of some sort. And this is part of the bobbing and weaving I was talking about. When to push harder, when to rest. It requires wisdom. There are no cut and dried legalistic answers for you. Maybe God is calling you to slow down in some area of your life. Maybe you're overextended. Maybe your family's paying the price. Be wise. 
Rest for a moment. Regain your strength. When to bob and when to weave. We live in a world hostile to the gospel. There's no need to die an unnecessary death. Living here requires a bended knee life. The scriptures call it walking by the Spirit. Presenting yourselves as a living sacrifice. Holding every thought captive. Abiding in the vine. Resting in Him. Know this. He will lead you. It may not be in a dream like it was for the Magi. You have the Scriptures and the sacraments. You also have other believers who remind you. It's true. It's true. Press on. These are brothers and sisters who have lived their lives and learned lessons you have yet to learn. Listen to them. Listen to their wisdom. Let God guide you. It requires humility. A bended knee. You see, when, when we see Jesus for who he really is, we should live wisely in the world. A lot has happened since that visit by the Magi. Jesus did not remain a toddler. He grew up. He walked this world. He stubbed his toes. He faced temptation. He turned down the devil's deal. He saw heartache. He lost family and friends to death and unbelief. He cried. He experienced betrayal and scorn. He smiled a lot, too. He loved little children. He healed the sick and the lame. He even raised a couple of people from the dead. And he loved to teach. He said things a lot of people didn't understand. He said things that I don't understand. But the way that his life ended, his common-to-man life, explained a good deal of what he had said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can get to the Father but by me. Destroy the temple and I will raise it up in three days. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. His common to man life ended on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. But know this. Jesus is not still. Jesus is alive. He whose birth was marked by a special star and whose death was marked by darkness, defeated death and hell. He rose from the grave and is seated in the heavenlies where all stars, bright and new, dying and dim, bow as the Magi did, with bended knee. He is the light of the world and Lord of all. We who were born with plasticized, frozen, inanimate souls need him to warm us. To bring us to life and make us to shine like stars in the universe. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians. The high king of heaven offers us life. His uncommon to man life. That only he can give. When we see Jesus for who he really is. We begin to see the world through his eyes. 
We worship him above the world. And we live wisely in the world. The only way to see him is with bended knee in humility looking up. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus to us. We thank you for the work of redemption. We thank you for the cross and we thank you that we have been captured by a conquering king who's strong enough to save our dead and damned souls. We pray that you'd move in us, move us from glory to glory. And for those who don't know you, move them from death to glory. God, we ask you, touch our hearts and, and, and bend our knees whenever we don't, are not inclined to bend them ourselves. Submit our wills to yours. And whenever we fail, bend our knees yet again. Send us to the cross. Over and over and over again until we see Christ face to face in glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.